Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, Day 93. Okay, so you've got your hours worth of material on this putative project, right? Whatever you think of it, however you're feeling about it right now, however much there actually is, you've written for about an hour total on this project. And um, whatever came out, you know a bit more about the project, what you do and don't know, you're a little bit farther along that road than you were when you started, which is good. If you don't listen to my podcast, Death of a Thousand Cuts, which I guess this technically still is, but I mean, um, the quote unquote regular episodes of the show, uh, you might not know that how it started out and what I originally made my moist little niche within the already extremely niche world of creative writing pedagogy um, was, was taking listeners first pages and offering feedback on them. Editing. Because the way I saw it, there are pages upon pages, heaped upon pages of advice and opinions out there about how to write a query letter to an agent. Something, incidentally, I have never done as a professional writer. I'm not sure why the internet is so fixated on it. It's like it's some magic summoning ritual that gets you a career, especially since, and I don't mean this to come off as condescending, it's just a fact, a non-trivial proportion of advice on how to write a query letter comes from people who've not had a book traditionally published which I hope you understand by now is not something that even makes my top 10 list of markers of success. Published or unpublished, trad pub or self-pub, award-winning, best-selling, literary or pulp, none of these things are especially important to me, nor do I think focusing on them yields good results or happiness. I'm just saying it's odd that so many people for whom querying agents has not yet worked are so prolific at offering advice on how best to do it. And there are loads of pages on how to promote your book or build an email list, sometimes by people who've genuinely built up a big newsletter following or who've shifted a lot of their own books. So that's something I can certainly uh, respect more. I feel less sceptical about those things. I, I, I don't know how to do either of those things well. Promotion is not something my heart's really in, and I don't think I'm a credible authority on the best ways to go about it. But that's not because I think it's beneath me or anything. I'm not cocking a snook at it. It's just because it's not among my areas of expertise in the same way I wouldn't start writing blog posts on the fundamentals of kendo. So those things are like out there and exist in the internet already if people want to go and look them up. But what there weren't, as far as I could see, were lots of good, thorough, honest resources on editing fiction well. There were some general principles laid out, but they didn't really have teeth you know they often weren't very specific we weren't looking at uh, an actual text and actually making the changes they were just generally laying out principles and the standard of writing being asked for often wasn't very good i don't want like be a knob about it but i was just like really i'd read stuff and think surely you can see that is a duff line this person asked for help and advice why are you soft soaping them because, like, once you've had mistakes, you know, weaknesses, flaws in a piece of writing pointed out, one, it's not a criticism of you personally. It's not impugning your right to exist or your essential value as a sovereign human being. It's just commentary on a text that happened to have been produced by you once, right? Two, once you get that feedback, you can make those changes. Then the text in question, and to a greater or lesser extent, every piece of writing you produce from that point on will be better. So it's actually empowering which seems like a good thing to do but 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 what i found was once i started it uh initially it was a blog and then i turned it into this podcast um i got emails from people saying thank you for doing your one page criti critiques i'm learning so much the only problem is 
Now when I write, I can hear your voice in my head pointing out my sloppy phrasing. And to be honest, I can hardly write at all. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm paralyzing a generation of writers by handing on my perfectionism and neuroses like a disease. I care about writing, right? And I care about it's being done well. But this, what people were telling me, this isn't empowerment. If I'm stopping people from writing because they're too scared of making a mistake, something has gone badly wrong. So I created my first creative writing course by podcast as a way of plonking something down on the other side of the balance. You know, something that emphasised the generative, the exploratory, the what I'd later come to know as the divergent thinking side of writing fiction. List making, free writing, embracing the unfamiliar, expanding one's window of, of tolerance, you know, in terms of psychological discomfort. Originality is a form of deliberate tactical mistake. And those things are all well and good and important. And I think there's a need for this kind of positive creative writing teaching that includes the psychology of writing while being undergirded by a solid layer of technical know-how and practicality. You know, that's why I've included them in this course. That's why I've spent a long, long time talking you through them and grounding you in them and emphasising not just the what, but the whys of them. But we are not at war with what often gets called, including by me, the inner critic. This is not some side of you to be eliminated or suppressed. You may have noticed that during the time we've spent together, I've asked you to notice the different thoughts you have about your work before, during and after a session. I've done that a lot, right? But I haven't asked you to stop having those thoughts, not even the critical ones. That's for two reasons. One, I don't think you can just choose not to have them. I think if you try to suppress them, you generally increase their prevalence and start linking them relationally to, to the desire to not have them. So it becomes completely futile. And secondly, because you need them. The inner critic is good. In fact, the inner critic is an indispensable ally, which is lucky because we cannot get rid of them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that um, when your writing demon, as we've cast them, says this is a bunch of sentimental rubbish. Who do you think you are writing stories? You're nothing that you should somehow take those observations as the gospel truth. But sometimes you want to be able to look back at something you've written and ask what works here? How can I make this better? Informed analysis, caring scrutiny, discernment, all of these are essential skills for any author who wants to do the stories in their head justice. Now, what each of those look like for you, what standards you're using as guides, and those can vary from person to person. There's not some original kilogram of quality weighed to the nearest micron and kept somewhere in a sealed vault. You get to decide what best honours the types of story you want to write, and it can be a tricky business disentangling what you truly value from what society, or your internalised version of society, expects. Alongside divergent thinking, indivisible from it in the writing process, in fact, is convergent thinking. Picking what you do and don't want to write about. Winnowing down options, making cuts, clearing stones and weeds from the garden of your story, sweeping the path. Far from being acts of self-sabotage or self-loathing, editing and redrafting can be supremely wholesome acts of love. Like preparing a room for an honoured guest, like bathing your child and helping them into clean, warm pyjamas before bed. You know, the energy isn't, oh, look at all these mistakes I made. Aren't I useless? Shouldn't I feel ashamed? It's, how can I make this more inviting for the reader? Where are my opportunities to clarify my meaning, sharpen the image, or just add something cool? 
I think that's why a lot of writers report really enjoying the redrafting process. It's, it's where the story really starts to feel like a story where you can start slapping on texture and maybe have enough breathing space to punch up the dialogue, where you can replace a generic vague object with something really idiosyncratic and memorable. It's like being able to travel back in time and feed yourself lines so suddenly you've got the perfect witty retort or helping calm you down in a stressful situation so you can act with kindness instead of losing your temper. That's the beauty and the ultimate grand hope of writing. It's not this deadly tightrope walk through volleys of flaming arrows above a pit of poisoned daggers. With redrafting, you get a second chance and a third and a fourth and more. Mistakes can be genuinely instructive without inflicting any permanent damage. A scene that doesn't seem to fit can be combined with another and miraculously redeemed. Sometimes whole stories that didn't work spend years in hibernation then come to life in another project. Look, I'll admit, it's a slow, disjointed process over which we have very little absolute control. But it's one in which, if we take the long view, there is a marvellous and heartening capacity for growth. Nothing is wasted. If we can find it in ourselves to commit to the process with patience, steadfastness and a kind of abiding trust, it will always, always yield fruit. On, on that point, in case, you know, you are starting to feel some pangs of scepticism, uh, look, I can only really offer my life experience as a testimony. I, I know it's really hard to believe in that sometimes, you know, in the frost-bitten winters of our creative lives. Just as actually, you know, it can be really hard to believe that we'll ever hit tricky times again during our creativity's lush and fertile summers. But all I can say is, you know, it's what I've observed across my own creative life and it's what I've observed in every friend, every colleague who has chosen to persist with writing. I can't say I always remember it. I can't say I always wholeheartedly believe that things are going to work out when I hit a difficult patch. But they always have. But to be honest, we don't always know what's best for us anyway, you know, and sometimes we set our sights too low. Sometimes we have to let something rot back into the soil to make way for something far, far greater. All of this is by way of lengthy preface to today's task, which is to take a piece of writing from the previous six days. That could include one of the scenes you wrote over multiple days and attempt to do some edits on it. Now, normally I wouldn't advocate redrafting this early in the process. Uh, I, you know, I'd suggest just finishing like an entire draft of a short story or novel and then and then going back. I mean, some writers work like that. You know, I speak to lots of authors. Everyone's got different processes. Some work by, you know, at the start of each new session, they look back over what they wrote the previous day, make line edits. And by the time they reach the end of what they wrote the previous day, they've sort of refreshed their memory as to what they were writing about and they're up to speed and raring to go. Personally, I often find it both a distraction and a bit disheartening. Like, either stuff doesn't read quite as well as I remember and I end up starting my new writing feeling sort of deflated and inadequate. Or or it reads so good, I'm like, oh, crap, the standard is really high. I can't possibly maintain this and I don't want to go on for fear of messing it up. But that might just be my own neuroses. I, I don't want, you know, I realise that I'm a little highly strung sometimes. Like I say, I'm a work in progress. I haven't got all this stuff figured out. I'm not telling you this from a position of huge authority, just stuff I've picked up and stuff I know, I, know, I think I know. And, and some proportion of creative writing is still uncontrollable and a mystery to me. But for the purposes of practising the art of self-editing and some of the basic 
principles of improving your prose. Today, I'd like you to take one of your previously generated pieces of text from the last six sessions and have a go at making it better. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to suggest a few principles you might like to apply, a few algorithms I run in my head when reading text to see how well it conforms. And, and these are ones that... Um, I use in the editing process, but after a while they become so internalised that sometimes I'm kind of running them concurrently with the act of writing prose. And sometimes I'll write a sentence and then tick, 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 and go back and doubt and re rework it. And sometimes they drop in actually before I've constructed the sentence as I'm constructing it in my head and they help it come out. So although these are redrafting principles... Um, once you've used them enough, they can become so second nature that they really become generative principles, if that makes sense. These will not be unfamiliar to you because I've mentioned them throughout the course, but I, I think it's worth my just doing a little recap to formalise the training and so you don't have the burden of going, gosh, what, what did Tim say? So some things to consider. The primacy recency effect. Try to put the most interesting parts of a sentence at the beginning and the end of that sentence. We retain the start and the end of a sentence better than the middle. Your story will feel crisper and more memorable if you make each last word a big punch. Not always possible, and it's not worth sacrificing basic intelligibility for, but you'd be surprised how often you can rephrase a sentence to stick the most important information at the end. Aside from anything else, it's good to feel like a sentence ends when it's delivered its payload instead of sort of petering out in all this grammatical cartilage that we know technically has to be there, but it doesn't add anything to our comprehension. And remember that the order in which you put the words, the syntax, is the order in which the reader will experience them. So if you write, the one-eyed vagabond advanced upon the cowering child, his scarred hand clutching a wicked blade, then it's like the camera cuts from the villain's face to the child and then... To the knife. I mean, look, I'm not expecting you to be writing quite such pulpy 1930s radio drama, but, but you get my point. Cut fluff words. Kind of, sort of, seemed too slightly, almost, very, um, often could in the phrase he could smell instead of he smelt. Sometimes even words like that or which. Anything that clogs up the sentence without significantly contributing to our understanding can usually be cut. Like usually in that sentence, it would have been stronger to say, can be cut. You would have understood I wasn't talking in absolute terms. You wouldn't have minded. At least I'd committed. Commit to stuff. Cut filter words. This is a bit more nuanced, but it's to do with recognising moments where you might have written, he saw a battered Volkswagen lying in the ditch, or he heard the sound of drums and instead writing, a battered Volkswagen lay in the ditch, or into the grove came the pounding of drums. Basically, instead of mediating an experience by using a verb that describes what sense a character uses to register that experience, saw, felt, heard, smelt, tasted, you know them, you just give us the experience directly and trust us to understand that the narrative is a representation of your viewpoint character's experience. This just makes the story read tighter, like no information is lost. When you say a battered Volkswagen lay in the ditch instead of he saw a battered Volkswagen lying in the ditch... We understand that he's perceiving that through his eyes. Like, you, you don't have to specify. We don't think he's, like, getting it through some kind of, like, extrasensory, informal psychic knowing. Unless that's what the story's about. Uh, and fewer words means it moves faster. There's also a less subtle... There's also, like, less subtle se separation between us 
and the main character, which increases empathy. And when we increase empathy, we experience it a little bit more like we experience the world as humans. And because of that, the emotions are a little bit heightened and we feel more engaged. Win, 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 win. Engage the reader's five senses. Speaking of which, this is linked to the last one. Just check you've included details that appeal to as many senses as possible. You don't have to sort of slavishly do this. You don't have to go through it like a checklist and do one visual, one sound, one smell. I know taste is often difficult, but it just helps bring the story to life if you can. Don't say the same thing twice. Often in a desire to make sure the reader understands what you're getting at, you describe the same scene or sensation two ways in two consecutive sentences. Pick the best one and cut the other. Coming at it multiple ways doesn't make the scene clearer. It dilutes it. I get it, right? You're feeling nervous. You, you lack a bit of confidence and you put in a bit of insurance because you'd rather go slowly than lose the reader. Just trust the reader cut what you don't need it i mean my first drafts are full of lines like that and often even i don't spot them and my agent or editor will just strike them out and you cut them and the story is so much better crunchy specificity don't pick a bland general noun that's a, a thing an object when you can pick a specific one don't pick an abstract word when you can pick a concrete one grenade is better than weapon rusted is better than lovely metaphors are better than similes generally speaking if you can cut like and replace it with was the image will be stronger i know that sounds way too a matter of taste to be a rule but try it see what you think the sun was like a gold coin the sun was a gold coin uh but the latter has a little bit more punch no more than one metaphor or simile per page again this is just a rule of thumb there's no police that will come and arrest you if you ignore me no court in the land would convict you to death for ignoring it but metaphors and similes are generally strongest when used sparingly and so if you pick your very best ones and delete the rest cull them ruthlessly you're usually left with an elite team of images uncluttered by their less successful rivals cut adverbs reduce adjectives i know some people think this is a prescription for a kind of clipped journalistic prose but generally it works really well adverbs are words that describe how something was done quickly angrily etc the fewer you use the better if the sentence still makes sense without it cut it adjectives describing words like yellow or hungry you know are fine you're going to use some but the temptation can be to stack three behind every noun so you have the big nice strong man opened the small blue picturesque door and and the reader gradually loses the will to live pick your battles choose your best adjectives think about whether you can choose a more specific noun instead every additional piece of description slows the pacing down now sometimes you want to slow the pacing down sometimes you want to control it sometimes you want a scene to spin out a little bit to linger that's okay but know what you're doing and for that to work and have impact you're going to have to set a standard of being quite lean don't use dialogue tags except said this is on the same kind of subject as being lean you know he uttered she bellowed, they ejaculated, all sounds very literary, but they're distracting. You know, if the reader can't tell how something was said by the content and context, you probably need to go back and fix those rather than hanging a stained direction on the end after the fact. This is the thing, right? Like, 
dialogue tags come after we've read the dialogue. So if you tell us something about how the dialogue was said that we didn't know while reading the dialogue, we have to go back and reread it with new information. That's a horrible experience. Watch out especially for he asked or she replied, which sound harmless, right? But trip up the reader's eye without adding any information. We know something's a question if it ends with a question mark. You don't have to explain they were asking. We know something's a reply from the context. Don't explain stuff we already know. If it, it slows the story down. Whereas said or says they're beautiful little workhorses of verbs, right? They, it just passes unnoticed by the reader, which is exactly in this context what we want. Don't be afraid of simple sentences. Remember, boldness has a power. Don't make every sentence a lyric poem. Give us some breathing space. I am super, super, super guilty of of, of over-egging the pudding, of, of, of being a little bit tarty with my language, of gilding the lily, of buttering the bassoon. And, and I've been criticised for it. And then sometimes people go, oh, you can tell he's a poet. And I think that that's a little bit of a two, uh, you know, double-edged sword, right? Now, I love farting around with prose. And, you know, you will um, prize those uh, Baroque, sinuous sentences out of my cold, dead fingers. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm rattling my sins like the links of Jacob Marley's chain here. And, and and saying you can you can avoid my fate uh certainly just again picking your battles and keeping it simple when you can means that when you do choose to go fancy schmancy it feels like an event and the reader's wowed by it instead of thinking oh god can we just like this character you've spent three paragraphs on the window box there passing can we just get on with it and i think uh, uh, those actually are probably all about the pointers i want to offer for now i i'm running a bit long so maybe we ought to um dive in thank you for indulging me i just wanted to get this right because this is really important stuff and this is also stuff where i've just got some practical like knowledge to just download into your head right whereas other times it's like the the, the works more on you but this is a, a bit where i feel like i can hand some actual stuff on so all you need to do now and uh, just pick a section from the work you've produced over the last six sessions. If you wrote it longhand, you can work by writing it out a second time, making corrections. If you wrote it on a laptop, you might have to save it as a new file, you know, version two or whatever. So you've still got the old one and you can make changes to this one without worrying you're going to destroy your original work. Um, when you're ready and, you know, feel free to hit pause if you need a few moments to set up or to choose. I don't need to leave a long pause there because you can manually pause it. Like, I don't need to introduce a, a, a second pause myself. But look, when you're ready, uh, I trust you to do that. I'll count you in and you can spend 10 minutes making a little start on looking for ways you might improve this piece, opportunities to punch up the writing, applying any of the principles I've outlined above, or just following your own tastes and intuition. You know, don't worry too much. You're not evaluating your own worth. You're not weighing your soul against a feather. You're just working on a piece of text. Are you ready? Good luck. Three, two, one, go.
And that's it. Well done. Now, I don't know how that felt for you. Maybe it was second nature. Maybe it felt a bit new. Maybe you felt a bit like you were dutifully polishing a poo-poo. Maybe you surprised yourself by making one or two lines better. However, when it went for you, well done for trying it at all. I think this is important work and it's a skill I want you to leave this course feeling at least a teensy bit better at. So tomorrow you're going to have one more and only one go at this just to make sure you've had some practice and to give you a chance to apply these skills in a fairly low risk arena. Right, go do something nice for yourself. Thanks for playing. See you tomorrow. For playing. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.